We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? The publisher, Temple University Press, the author, Lincoln Mitchell. Please join me as we welcome Lincoln Mitchell to the clubhouse. Before we get going, I just want to say a couple of quick things. Uh, it's not really, you're kind of in between. You're not really a welcome to the clubhouse and you're not a welcome home. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this is, Lincoln has written prior books, but this is his first baseball book. So Lincoln has been here in the past a few times in those seats for other events. And now he gets to, through a lot of effort and hard work, <laughs> got to sit over here and join all the other authors that we've had uh, in the seven years that we've been here. So congratulations. Well, thank you for having me. It is, I'm looking at this group up there, I'm actually a little bit flattered to be in back. My, my academic books don't sit with such prominence. <laughs> all right, I'll try you to put you, you'll, you'll, you'll go right next to a Pulitzer Prize winner. It's all right, thank you, you deserve it. Um, and for those of you who may not know, just quickly, Lincoln Mitchell is a scholar and writer based in New York City. He was on the faculty of Columbia University for many years and has contributed to numerous publications, including the Washington Quarterly, the American Interest, World Affairs Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. Uh, and now, it's a pleasure to have you here tonight about baseball. Great to be here. Uh, so just to get us going, if you could just let us know how this book came, came to be. Well, I, I was thinking about this. There are several ways this book came to be. The first is that even the people closest to me, many of whom are in this room tonight, don't know quite how much I think about baseball. Right? <laughs> they don't know quite the depths of, of my obsession with baseball. So I love baseball, and as I started writing books on political science and other things, I thought, you know, I really should, should write a baseball book. Um, I then realized that my comparative advantage is not that I don't have, I'm not a reporter. I don't have a lot of contact. I don't know baseball players. But I have a set of kind of professional and academic experiences, primarily working in the Soviet Union, seeing a, a, um, in what had been one country that collapsed, and how that happened, and how things that can, how the distance from inevitable or uh, unimaginable to, ine to inevitable can somehow be so, so fast. And then the, the most specific reason is the summer of 2014, the Pirates were playing the Yankees in a doubleheader in Yankee Stadium. It's a true story. And it was one of those real doubleheaders, which they almost never have, where you buy one ticket for one game. They don't clear the stadium for two games. And right. you get to go. And I got there, and I went with my younger son and a dear friend of mine named Max, and, um, who's you know, probably 60 and a baseball fan his whole life. And, and the first thing I, when I got there, I just kept noticing how empty the ballpark was. And then I remember in the seventh inning stretch of the second game, he got up to go to the men's room, and I thought, He's an experienced baseball fan. Why is he going to the bathroom in the seventh inning stretch? He's going to be gone forever. He's back in 30, in 30 seconds. And I realized that there's something behind the surface of the never-ending stream of stories about the health of the industry that maybe should be probed a little bit as we look towards baseball's future. Well, as you know from being here, uh, I don't really let the authors read anything from the Yeah, books. I'm not prepared. Yeah, that. so, but I want to read uh, about two sentences that you wrote, okay. and then you can comment on what you wrote. Uh, this is a book about how institutions survive and evolve in changing environments. The primary question posed in this book 
whether big league baseball will survive for more than another decade or two, as specifically whether big league baseball will continue in its current form as a huge global and lucrative business offering a monopoly in the United States and Canada on the best baseball played anywhere in the world. So since that's the primary question, that you pose, you can answer your, or, or start I to answer start that to, question. Let me start from a couple of angles. The first, the first thing, and the book I think spends a lot of time on this, if you look at baseball now, which is kind of how I described in the second half of that excerpt you read, there's a tendency to kind of assume that's how baseball always was, right? But um, just a couple of examples. An obvious one is that until 1946, the best players in the world were not playing in the major leagues, right? We all know of the exclusion of African Americans. Some of us know of the exclusion of dark-skinned Latino players. There was this kind of gray uh, area color line involving Latinos. There were certainly no Asians. No matter how good you were in Japan, you know, you weren't, you weren't coming here. And even among those small, that small universe of white Americans, many didn't play in the major leagues because it was you were better off playing for the Los Angeles Angels or the San Francisco Seals than the St. Louis Browns. I'm talking about financially. So it, it, it wasn't that. Now, another related piece from that same era is that Right before Thanksgiving, Ralph Branca died, right? And Ralph Branca is known for having, I think, probably being the second best Jewish pitcher in Dodger history. But, um, <laughs> some guy from Brooklyn who didn't, architecture school didn't work out for him. Um, Jewish, he wasn't Jewish. Yes. Ralph Branca was. Yeah, Actually, he was, he was he but was. that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> we'll, we'll get, we'll, we can do that after the podcast. I don't really want to go into but, but, <laughs> but yeah, the was. point of that story was not Ralph Branca's ethnic background. The point, the point was that, of course, he gave up Bobby Thompson's home run, and if you go to any kind of, you know, you, every baseball fan has seen that clip more times than they can count, right? Including the kind of bizarre, kind of weird Native American racist things that some of the fans are doing, but, um, which we, but, but what you don't always see is that that stadium was not quite two-thirds full at the time. This is the most exciting game, in, you know, generally viewed as the most exciting in baseball, most exciting moment in baseball history, but also a game that was high. This was the final game of a three-game series with the most intense rivalry that ended in, that, where they end the season in a tie. This, you knew this was going to be a great game. You didn't quite know how great it was, but it, couldn't, it didn't sell out. Baseball, while it played a much, I would argue, perhaps a bigger role in the culture for many years, did not play, was not as big of an industry. There just wasn't as much money floating around. You know, we just, the collective bargaining agreement was, we avoided a lockout or a strike, and there was resigned. But this is the amount of money and the size of the industry is so much bigger. It wasn't always like that. Matter of fact, as recently as the early or mid '90s, there was talk of of contracting, of getting rid of two teams. So the state of the industry, the kinds of players they're recruiting, and then there's this global dynamic to it, right? Um, you know, Sadahara Oh, who was you know the kind of the, the great Japanese slugger, never played an inning. In, in, in our major leagues. You know, would he have been as good as Henry Aaron here? We don't know, right? Would he have been a pretty good ball player? A lot of the evidence suggests he would have been. I can't project exactly what his stats would have been, but he certainly would have been good enough. And if he was good enough, there were certainly others who, who were, who could have been. And what we've seen in the last 20 years is that many of the best players from Japan and Korea and even Taiwan want to come, Taiwan, want to come here because they can make some money, more money. They can test themselves against, you know, the best players in the world, that kind of competition. But that relies on a kind of international structure, which you know, cannot be just assumed to go on forever, both in terms of, of the demands that other countries will make on Major League Baseball, the relationships between the United States and other countries. So just to assume that's just going to go on forever, we may be at kind of peak baseball right now in terms of those questions. 
And before we get into some of the other, the, the meat of the book, I just have a question. It's kind of a curveball uh, question. You'll handle it, though. Uh, the first thing that, that threw me off a little bit, in a good way, were these, the chapter titles. So now I, uh, I, I see the book, uh, and I'm expecting, well, you know, will baseball, will Big League Baseball survive? I'm assuming you're going to go back in time or, or whatever it is. And I love your chapter titles. Just out of interest, uh, those, those are all your, you get to write those uh, titles? Yeah, okay. yeah, they're definitely. So just, uh, chapter one is the Selig years, which is not where I was expecting this uh, to start. So since that is where you decided it should start, if you just want to talk a little bit about, uh, and one of, I, I guess it's, it's timely in some sense, is that one of his great, uh, I guess, victories, so to speak, about the winner of the All-Star Game, yes. the league hosting the All-Star Game, uh, uh, hosting the World Series, uh, home field advantage uh, uh, is now history. Right, so the new collective bargaining agreement, the winner of the World Series, excuse me, the winner of the All-Star Game no longer gets the home field advantage in the World Series. Instead, it goes to the team among the two that are in the World Series with the best regular season record of the two. And, you know, that's totally subjective, which, which is better. I'm, I'm really happy with either one. The reason I started with the Silla Gears is I wanted to get an assessment of where baseball is today. And basically, I was writing this at the very end of, of, of the Silla Gears. And, and with regards to that, there's a couple things that jump out. Sealy's a controversial figure, right? And I think we can identify some things that he did very well, right? So, so before we backtrack a little bit, when Sealy inherited the game, it was very different. It was still played primarily by people born in the United States. You could still regularly get, you know, a quarter, maybe a third of the adults in the country to watch the World Series. Um, it was, there was, salaries were much smaller, attendance was much lower. So there were a couple things I think Sealy did well. One is the internationalization of the game, right? making the game, bringing in players from, from Japan, from Taiwan, from Korea, increasing the flow of players from Latin America. And with that, in my view, you get better baseball because you get the best players available. The second thing is about, you know, early on in C-Leagues when he was still, I think, acting commissioner, this magical new thing called the Internet comes around. And that changes everything about baseball. I mean, it changes how we consume the information, right? It changes the amount of data that is available to, to any fan. And in many ways, it breaks down the barriers between insider and outsider, right? So people like me, I used to write a weekly column on baseball without ever stepping foot in a major league clubhouse. And, it was, and I didn't lie about it and pretend to do interviews. I said, this is my, you know, look at the numbers, this is my opinion. But that, that kind of, that expertise that you had if you were an insider was somehow being broken down. I think Seal League and Major League Baseball under his leadership adapted very well to that. They produced fantastic products. They found ways to make money off of it. So they did that very well. Other things where I think the seal of gears were not well. One of them was obviously the, the PED issue, right? So, so the seal of gears were, were very mixed, and that's, but that's why I wanted to start there. Okay, and then uh, we'll, we'll shortly get to our uh, intelligent crowd for their questions, but I just want to go through something else before yeah. we do. Uh, another one of your sentences in the book is, part of the existential appeal of baseball is that, is that it is both timeless and ever-changing. And some of the changes that you speak about, the four general areas of change, basically. The economics of the game, technologies of baseball, which you just touched on, uh, youth baseball, and globalization. So if you would, uh, pick one of those and give us a little insight into that. Well, we haven't talked about, well, let, let me start with um, the economics of the game, right? You know, there is this, 
I, I, I'm beginning research on another book, but but there which but A there was book. yeah yeah. Um, so there is this this. You know, in the '50s and the '40s, players had to work in the off season, right? And there is a demographic of fans that think, therefore, you know, baseball was a more pure game, and it may or may not have been, right? But it really was a very different game, right? Roy Campanella would have had the second last third of his career if players hadn't had to work in the off season, right? So there is there is a negative that comes with that. But the economics have changed so much that that baseball, there's so much more money around, there's so much more money in every part of the game that that changes the game, but. But it, my, a key argument I make in the book is that to assume that that's a given, right? To me, that's a very risky assumption. And the future, may, I mean, this whole thing about this collective bargaining agreement, I mean, this, just to pick one economic example that seems like a small one, the $5 million cap on international signings. This was, I think, put in instead of the international draft, which the owners wanted, right? Um, because it would keep salaries down. Of course, the players didn't because it would push salaries up. But well, what strikes me about that is if you think of something like an international draft, there are so many global, um, global realities that have to exist for that to work, right? So first of all, because he just uh, died, what about Cuba, right? I mean, how, how does Cuba fit in? Are, are, are teams going to draft Cuban players who may or may not get on a boat, a leaky boat, and leave the island, right? But also, we have, we have a, um, we've had about a half century. I'm, I'm a political scientist, not an economist but of increasing global trade and globalization. And we have now had about half a year with some major, with electorates in major Western countries um, voting that maybe that's not where they want to see the economic direction. So how does that affect the, the economics of baseball? So, And I would, I would like to, dis, uh, to discuss youth baseball okay. because uh, personally I found that extremely fascinating I think everyone here obviously got into baseball as a child. It's, I'm guessing everyone here. Uh, and that's a major problem that baseball has. So if, if you could just talk about that. Yes. There's a lot going on in, in, in youth baseball and youth sports that it is in different ways to, to get at them. One is this kind of, you know, why do they give participation trophies, which to me is that's kind of a, kind of a right-wing trope. I mean, no one really gives them. I'm not a fan of participation trophies. That's not the real issue here, right? The real issue is, among the real issues are that there's no sandlot anymore, and increasingly, there's not even rec leagues, right? So I, I was at a, uh, my uh, younger son plays on a travel team in the Bronx, and I was, a travel team, just a team, like they don't travel, I should let them up at Throg's Night, that doesn't, that's not travel, <laughs> plays on a team in the Bronx, and I was, you know, he was, he pitched his, and then he was, like, took him out for the last inning because he reached his pitch count, and I was walking around the field to, you know, and there was a group of seven and eight-year-olds from my old Little League, which used to never have a, a, a tournament program, right? And the reason is that that's the only way you can bring kids into rec league, into even just playing baseball, is with this incentive of, of this, the more elite programs, right? The result of that, and that's on, the, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, there is the phenomenon where fewer kids play multi-sports, right? Now, if you listen to any sports doctor, any athlete, they will tell you that until a certain age, you should be playing two or three sports, right? They don't, right? And the reason for that is partially the economics of a whole cadre of people who played college baseball, who played a few years in the minor leagues, who need to make some money coaching, right? And then you kind of fold that into the larger parenting industrial complex and nervous middle class parents, and, and that's what happens. The result of that is that the middle of the bell curve on the baseball field is gone, right? 
Most 12-year-old non-elite teams or non-elite programs are two or three really good kids and, and a bunch of kids who are out there because their parents either want them to get away from a screen, lose some weight, try something new, something like that, right? The result of that is that baseball isn't fun, right? Because the guy who is the star point guard on the basketball team may not be the best player, but he's probably good enough to play an infield position and bat, you know, sixth or seventh and field a ground ball and put the bat on the ball. Without, with that, but that guy's now, or that woman, well, different for girls, they don't play baseball, but, you know, is, not, is now working on a basketball program, right? So that's, that's another piece of it. And with that, so with that, you have fewer people who are becoming fans. So you very kind of just axiomatically say most of you grew up playing baseball. That's how you became fans. Well, I mean, and I talk about this in the book that, that you know, in volunteer little leagues, they have trouble finding coaches for kids over the age of 12 who really know what they're doing, who can basically know enough about baseball to coach little leagues. So that's, and then there is an additional hitch problem with baseball, which I discuss in the book in, in some depth, which is that girls don't play baseball. So there's this kind of, go into the history of why, and then the really kind of sexism behind excluding girls from baseball. But, um, and, and I cite some of the, the literature on that, you know, including what I think the most interesting finding, and this is from Jennifer Ring, who is a professor at uh, Reno, University of Nevada, Reno, where, where she talks about when girls get good at baseball, that's when the gender discrimination gets the worst, right? Because then, oh, you're taking that spot from a boy who could be on the travel team, which, if you think about it for, I don't know, 10 seconds, is nonsensical, right? Because if the boy isn't good enough to get the last spot on a travel team, he's not going to college anyway to play baseball. He's not going to play for the Yankees. He's just a kid, you know? But if we're searching for fans and we are excluding half of the young people, you know, that's an easy way to solve the problem. But those are changes in how youth baseball, youth play baseball, and that leads to changes in how the game is, is played, watched, what the economics of the game might be, et cetera. Well, Jennifer Ring actually was here with that book, so I'll put you uh, oh, next good. to her book instead. And by the way, you know who else wishes that kids would play two or three sports, not just baseball, are Major League Baseball scouts. Yes. Uh, we've had those discussions many times, and scouts wish kids did things other than baseball. Well, you know, with, with um, my son this summer, at one point I said the best thing for your pitch, he wanted to do this anyway, I didn't force him to, but the best thing to do for his pitching was to go take a bike trip. You know, work <laughs> on his legs. He didn't, that was great. <laughs> so I have other questions, but uh, yes. Um, can you just touch on, I know you started with the C-League era, on baseball's inability to change and keep up with the times. With regards to what, exactly? Just with regards to the rules not changing and the time getting longer. Oh, those kind of things. I mean, yeah, and that's not what I addressed a lot in the book. Um, but I think this issue with length of game is a problem. And it's also a problem because games start at 8 o'clock, right, in the postseason. So you really, I mean, I could not take either of my kids, who may be the biggest, like, young Giants fans in the city of San Francisco Giants fans, in the city of New York to that Giants-Mets game. They just would not have gotten home in time. Um, but this is, there, there's another, to me this is a little bit complicated because what's happened is that many, many of the kind of people making decisions for teams and scouts and general managers and all of that have figured out that the most effective way to ba play baseball is in many respects not very interesting, right? Strikeout, walk, home run baseball, right? As opposed to bat on ball, let the fielders do something baseball, right? So it's not very interesting and it takes a lot of time. Right? I mean, if you, on Thanksgiving, uh, and I said this in a previous interview, so pardon me, but in, on Thanksgiving, when I was making the turkey, because I don't like football, 
I was watching a couple of postseason games from the 1970s. And even as late as the 1970s, very few players in the World Series would take, would, would, a, a plate appearance would be three or fewer pitchers in most cases, right? There was, you know, Don Sutton at one point, or Catfish Hunter has seven innings for four-hit baseball, six innings of four-hit baseball in the World Series, and two strikeouts, right? So it's just a different game. But, but there, there are these issues of, you know, you can do things like limit um, pitching changes within, in, each in, in an inning, right, which I actually would be okay with. You can do things like the clock, but what you can't do is say you're only allowed to walk a certain amount of times a game, right? or, you, or you know, the Charlie Finley idea of three balls and two strikes and you're out. I mean, that I think would break an already fractured America if you, <laughs> if you did that. But, but these, are, these are real problems. And, and the, the solution, uh, the discussion, and I forget what the CBA did about it, it's the 26th person on the roster, that's like saying, oh, if the solution is you have a drinking problem, just have another beer. I mean, that doesn't solve the problem at all. Because that's just, oh, put another pitcher on and have more pitching. You know, I would say if you really want to speed up the games, have 24 players. Force, the, force a reliever to go more than one, one batter you know, from time to time. Um, Re-incentivize. Make players, make the, the, the next innovating in, in managing is going to realize I don't need that 12th guy in the bullpen. It's the risk-averse thing to do. It slows the game down. What I really need is a pinch hitter with a little pop in his bat. Instead of adding a roster space to do that. Now, this is an economic question, right? Players want that roster space. The owners don't. But that is, that is, and there are people who say that, you know, is baseball, can baseball, it's just not made for this time. It's made for the radio era, for the text era. We're in a video time. And my answer to that is that it depends. But in the last chapter of the book, and this is not really a spoiler, you know, I lay out scenarios. I don't make recommendations. And one of the scenarios is that baseball finds a way to essentially get into a close, not, not trying to be in the mass appeal that it, is, it has in some respects, but not entirely, and really tries to find ways to really get more money out of, out of their current fan base, right? Um, and that's because it doesn't have that, it's, it's losing that kind of mass appeal, right? When, when Derek Jeter retired, there was this MLB had this kind of bizarre fake contest to see who the face of baseball would be, and Buster Posey won. Now, Buster Posey, you know, I'm a great ball player, right? And I'm a big fan, and, and you know, he's is in many respects perfect for, for all of that. I don't know that if Buster Posey sat down at the restaurant in the corner, and none of us were there, anybody would recognize it. Right, so we, we... Uh, I haven't read the book, but I've been curious to know your thoughts. Each of these comes from different directions. Does concussion and youth football, perhaps on the way, portend more kids coming to baseball? And from the other angle, has the United States made finally be on its way to becoming Um, with regards to concussions, you know, there are many things that incentivize kids to play baseball, right? One is there's just more money in baseball, right? A career in baseball, if you're not that good, if your average professional career is going to last longer and make more money. You know, if I were writing the book, Will Football Survive? It would be a terrible book because I don't know anything about football, but I would have spent a lot of time <laughs> on concussions. One of the people I interviewed here said, she said, um, you know, baseball should really market itself as the non-concussion sport. So I think it can bring people... To that, but but you know, you talked about, you know, baseball is, we, we, it's not exactly a national sport anymore, right? It's played by ethnic groups, right? It's played in different areas. It's very big in Southern California. Um, it's not so big in, in in parts of the Deep South. 
It's very big among you know Latinos. African Americans don't play it. Um, it's pretty popular among among Jewish Americans. It's it's not so popular in, in the kind of agricultural Midwest anymore, Nebraska, Iowa, the Dakotas. So it's it's not exactly a national sport anymore. Now soccer, I think, is you know we've been hearing about soccer being ready to take over at you know for as long as I've been paying attention to sports. On the other hand. The World Cup final in 2014, where the American women's team won, had more viewers than Game 7 of the World Series, which was admittedly between the Royals and the Giants. You didn't have a New York or Chicago or LA team there. But that's still a significant number um, in my view. So it's, it's not clear to me which. I wonder, I always think of baseball as an intergenerational sport, you know, that history is passed down, et cetera, et cetera. I go to Yankee Stadium every Sunday with my son and my daughter. It's a special part of my life, etc. But I wonder if that's been changed by the way the world is today. Uh, before I came here today, I, I stopped at Barnes & Noble. And in the spring, I went to Barnes & Noble before one of the events here. And there was a line around the block. So I asked the man who was guarding the line, who's here tonight? And he said, uh, I always say his name now, PDU. I forget what it was, PewDiePie or something like that? So I said, who's he? <laughs> I had no idea who he was. He's a gamer in Sweden. He's got the most hits on the internet of anybody in the world. And he was there that night, and all these kids are outside ready to go in to see him. And I was in Barnes & Noble, and it was all this screaming, because he must have come into the building. And I have not heard of him. So I'll tell you a funny, in response. <coughs> I'll, I'll PewDiePie was his name. So I'm not gonna know who that is, but, but, but I'll try to answer <laughs> no, your question. But, but, oh, that guy. But I'll tell you a funny story, which is related to that, and another Barnes & Noble story. About 20 years ago, I had a friend from Marin County who was managing a Barnes & Noble on Fifth Avenue here in, in New York. And uh, he, some of his people went home and said, there's some guy coming in today for a signing. I don't know who he is. And, and my friend said, no, I don't know, what's his name? And he said, Dusty Baker? <laughs> he was managing the Giants. My friend was a Giants fan. He spent the whole afternoon with him. Nobody was interested. Um, but, I mean... We, I think we have to be careful. If we look at, this is what uh, the social critic Greg Proops calls the grandpa demographic, right? And that's, I know that not everyone here is grandpa, but you know, the mean age here is, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and so we have to be careful, and that's a problem for baseball, right? So we wanna draw a line between things we say because we're just kind of, and I say, I'm being very inclusive here, because we're kind of old and curmudgeonly, right? Versus real things. Right? So an older curmudgeonly thing is, ah, Herman Killebrew is a much better player than Albert Pujols ever was. It's not, so I'm not sure I agree with that. Right? But a real thing is that there's a lot more to do now than there was 30, 40 years ago. I mean, one of the reasons we played baseball all the time was that that's kind of what there was. Right? One of the reasons we watched Game of the Week every Saturday in middle school and high school was there was nothing else was on television on a Saturday afternoon if you were you know, a, a child. Right? I mean, I'm going to watch some weird nature show or some movie that I don't care about. Right? There, was not, there were fewer things to do. So, so in general, for that entertainment or whatever you want to call it, dollar and time and click and mimic and attention, there was much, much greater competition. And that is something that there's more people also. Right? I mean, Bill James, I was just rereading the, the, the 2001 Historical Baseball Abstract, and he has this number where he says, you know, looking at attendance order, and the way he calculated it, in, in, in not the 1950s, the average American went to a baseball game once, every, major baseball game once every 10 years. By the 90s, that's once every four and a half years, which has to do with the population growth, the attendance growth. I'm not sure if that's right if you do the math, but the proportions are right. 
So there's much, much more competition. And if you want to, and that's why, I mean, I think this question will big league baseball survive. Now I come to the conclusion, as Rob Nyer says in the back, spoiler alert, it will. But I also raise that it, it just might not, right? I mean, and, and the example I give to support that argument is boxing. Think how popular boxing was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Today, I mean, every two years there's a fight that, that, that maybe you'll pay attention to, right? It, it is a, a, a fringe thing. There are probably very serious boxing fans out there somewhere, but they're not, you know, other than that one fight every couple of years, it's not part of the, the cultural framework anymore. And that could certainly happen to baseball. Now, on, in fairness to the game, they've done a very good job of navigating this because the counter-argument is we're selling more tickets than ever. We have more revenue coming in than ever, right? So the question is, is that kind of peak baseball for the reasons I laid out? Is that a bubble? Or am I just being old and curmudgeonly? And I really work in the very hard in the book to not just be old, and I can't help, but you know, not be too old and too curmudgeonly because I do think there is the germ of a problem there. So we talk, I, guess, I haven't read the book, but you talk about globalization. Ever since I've been alive, it's been Asia, Latin America, Canada, maybe a little bit. Uh, where, where is baseball expanding? Where, if they're playing in Europe, I, I don't know about it. If they're playing in Russia, I don't know about it. Uh, Africa, where's um, where's baseball so expanding to? This let me let me maybe take a broaden that question because I haven't talked about the globe, that part of the globalization speech as much as I think some might like, and I, and I also wanted to get to with your question and I forgot. Um, you know, we have this notion that soccer is the global sport and baseball is some weird fringe thing that Americans do. Is tells you when a European tells us it tells you more about Europeans than it does about America or baseball, right? There there are cricket, for example, is a wildly popular sport only in a handful of countries, but a handful of the biggest countries in the world, right? So the, the kind of global sports environment is more competitive and more complex than the kind of soccer and then quirky Americans, right? Um, so there are the usual suspects. There's the kind of first tier, right? But already that first tier has expanded. We no longer, we now no longer blink when there's a Taiwanese player playing in the big leagues, right? But that 20 years ago would have been a very big deal, right? We see, you know, um, uh, the World Baseball Classic, which they're now rumored may or may not continue, right? But the World Baseball Classic, it's, it's a very, the, the approach that the big leagues have done is to kind of make it a hybrid where they make it very easy for Americans to play for teams that aren't America, right? So we now have, in a very odd situation, which is very strange, we have two American teams in the World Baseball Classic segregated by religion, right? We have the team of American Christians, which is called Team USA, and we have the team of American Jews, which is called Israel, right? There is one Israeli-born player on the Israeli World Baseball Classic team, right? The guy who manages it, I interviewed my podcast, is from Los Angeles. His name is Jerry Weinstein. Very good baseball mind. Like, you know, he can manage a major league team, but he's not Israeli, right? And to his credit, when they played Great Britain in the qualifying round, in the final, for the, for the spot, he brought the one Israeli guy out to pitch the last inning. And he, I mean, he, he did fine. He, no, no, no one scored, and, and they won. So... But that is an effort. So countries like the Netherlands, right, where honkball is not as popular as it should be given how good the team is, but by bringing in people from, you know, islands with, with historical relations to the Netherlands, you know, Andrew Jones, Bert Blylevin was the pitching coach a couple times for that team, it, it, it begins to, to build it. I think in some of these European countries, and I would be specific, Italy, Germany, um, Great Britain, and the Netherlands, baseball is kind of where soccer was 25 years ago here. It's a way to telegraph that you're kind of cool, 
right? It's a cool hobby. Oh, he's into baseball. He must. It's like it's like I wear bestowed you know bowler hats or something, right? It's kind of like a cool <laughs> hipster thing, but it's it's growing. The the obvious huge market here is China, right? And there are, you know, and, and what I argue in the book is that, and, and Major League Baseball, like many other industries, have been trying to grow in China for a long time. Basketball is much more popular in China, but China's not a historic soccer country. So you don't have to displace another sport, right? And even if you catch on halfway in China, the money there is just enormous. Now, if you catch on halfway in China, the money's there enormous, it'll change out of our big league structure, and that's a point I make in the book. And then there are, you know, small countries. I mean, I frequently, when I go to Georgia, the, the former Soviet country, I bring a bunch of baseballs because when the Georgian national team hits them into the forest, they can't buy replacements. <laughs> <laughs> but there are these small countries where it is, you know, once people start playing it, they get kind of obsessed with it. And I have a long interview in the book, I didn't quote it too extensively, with a guy who really is, runs the Georgian baseball program. And he says, if we got one guy to make it to the major leagues, like this country would go baseball crazy. Now this is a small country with a special relationship with the United States, and you know, they, there's a lot of ties between the two countries, but that's something to think about, right? I mean, it's not, you know, Yao Ming is a special case, but in China, but so there are, there are places, and I'm not talking a year or two, but the next 10 or 20 years where you could be seeing some of that stuff. Two points on the youth side, Nathan, look forward to reading wonderful, wonderful books you spent a lot of time on, your insight. Um, on the concussion side, I look back to last year when the concussion film came out, as we know. I mean, that, that was led by some haters. That was a Will Smith passion project. He had other friends that were working at scale on that film. He had Alec Baldwin, you know, one, another wonderful actor. And I, I have a good intel. I've had this conversation with the actor in the film, who's a friend of mine, that there was lobbyists working in Hollywood with the Rams on the way to L.A. that said, make sure this film is on screens and off screens as quick as possible if you want your season taken. That said, there's a good old boy club that operates at MLB and at the NFL home office, and they're not going to be stepping into southwest Georgia and Tennessee and saying, young single mother, your son is a tremendous athlete, probably African-American, and he should play baseball and not play football. They do not want those men on the ground, those scouts, those who, as we know, youth football is a big business, and it would take a... It would take a big movement of the deaf ears at 245 Park Avenue to say, we're going to start stepping on toes and have Mr. Manfred and uh, Mr. $30 million a year guy up at the NFL that denies that this is a problem and it's going to happen. That said, going back to the sport-specific mention, there's one demographic in the American baseball in, in our 50 United States that has to focus once they figure, I'm good at baseball, and that's young black athletes. That is the one place where you'll be lost. If Andrew McCutcheon didn't have that opportunity for somebody else to pay for his travel ball, he would blow it out of his knees, probably second year playing football at Florida State. So we look at right now, we have three top East Coast teams where each of their top three prospects are African-American players from the Southern California area, as products of the Urban Youth Academy. And those guys, and everyone has been told they have to amend, none of them is older than 22 years old now. If they didn't have the opportunity to focus on baseball, from coaches that play at a higher level, culturally, basketball and football would have taken them. And if they, if, if they didn't stick on the baseball field because that opportunity was there, they would have been gone before draft day even came. Now, 17 out of 75 of the first 75 picks in the 2015 MLB draft 
for African-American young men. The numbers are working up. That, if there's any place that sports-specific training has to be prompted, I've had this conversation with Peter Gammons, he agrees. We're not getting those versatile athletes. And if we move them past 16 and they don't fall in love with baseball, they're gone to the gridiron or they're gone to the backcourt. And that's it. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you're also right about the point about uh, the NFL, right? There is, there is competition for this. But, you know, that, that, that price of entry is very high in baseball, right? You talk about Andrew McClellan playing for someone paying for his travel team. It's, it's very high. And that, and I don't see it getting, you know, that, that's unlikely uh, to change. So I think you raise a very good point. This is obviously the big challenge. And it's something, I mean, I think, you know, the African-American, in terms of numbers of players on the field percentage-wise, peaked around the mid-1970s and has been in slow decline since then. And the result of that is not just players, but an enormous chunk of, the, of a potential fan base, right? Sure. I mean, you know, uh, and, and I, Chris Rock's uh, thoughts on that are in the book, and that's, to me, that, that's very important. So I think these are very, very good points. I agree very, very much. Chris Rock's was wonderful. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Let me ask you a couple things uh, about the, uh, and I haven't written a book on the floor reading it, um, about problems or potential problems with the game. Uh, baseball is, I'll say, unique among the major American sports uh, for the extent to which uh, there's competition for players and their salary cap and the size of the advantage that the big market teams, I should say big market teams, good market teams have. Um, that a strength of the game, uh, a, a weakness that somebody's going to have to address sometime? Uh, what I see happening, uh, just in my perspective, is that um, uh, the, the, the shills like Selig and Manfred say, oh, look, you got the Kansas City Royals. But the fact is that the, the coastal teams with the, with the big and wealthy markets have an enormous advantage. Uh, and uh, as, as they get less dumb over time, that uh, natural advantage is going to play out. Well, there's a couple of things that, that come to mind, and I'll try to get to, I'll try to get uh, to most of them. Right. First, the this notion of big market. Well, well, first, in many respects, much of that has been equalized. There's no salary cap, right? But now there is a. They've actually, and they've loosened the. Um, the compensation for losing, you don't lose as much if you lose, you don't get as much back if you lose a free agent. So that actually will help the bigger market teams. But some things have changed, right? The biggest one is the teams have gotten smart, right? Good play, great players don't get to free agency anymore, right? Now, when they do, they get the quarter billion dollar Robbie Cano contract. But this year, I mean, Yohannes Cespedes is not, he's not a 25 year old with his best years ahead of him, right? Any of these three great closers that the Giants are trying to get, for example, Melanson, Chapman, and Kelly Jansen, these are not. These are not future Hall of Famers, you know. Um, so, so the free agency has changed a lot in the past years. Additionally, the contracts that MLB has um, with the cable television programs, with its own, you know, its own money from advanced media products, filter puts so much money into the teams that that's less of a problem than it used to be. Now, there's a couple of other problems here as well. One is that. Um, and I think this is striking, right? For many years, the Braves were considered a big market team, right? And just as we were walking in, there was some, somebody on the MLB network saying how, well, the Braves made this trade. I didn't even see what the trade was. I think they traded prospects for somebody so that they won't be seen as a laughing stock this year, right? So what we know the Yankees are always going to be a big market team, right? But what defines a big and small market team is a lot more subjective outside of a few obvious teams 
than we might sometimes think, right? The other, the other, there's a lot of points on this, so forgive me. Um, can, can I interrupt for one second? Yeah, I think that, uh, you're right, big market, small market, the misnomer, but there are teams. No, there are, hmm? yeah, right, there's only going to be the Pirates on one hand, the Yankees on the other, like yeah. that's. But, but there are really good markets. Yes. Because of, among other things, their size, but, but, but San Francisco was thought of as a terrible market for baseball for decades. For decades, right? I mean, they were constantly the Giants. Giants twice had their bags packed and were leaving in today's. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you that we're very, very poorly run. Yeah, yeah no, that's the point. Of course, that's the yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm, my point that I try to make oh, I'm sorry. at the end is there are fewer dumb people running baseball. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And that means that the teams with the natural advantage because of the quality of their markets are going to... Uh, realize on that advantage. Right, you're not going to have George Steinbender just giving away every product, every prospect his team produces in, like he did in the 1980s, right? But but there are fewer ways to, to use your financial advantage, right? That's what I'm trying to say. There are fewer, you can't just go out and get that. Those great players don't get to free agency. You can no longer just spend as much money as you want on the international draft. Now the other piece of this, which is kind of peripherally related, is that there's no more there's no more untapped big markets, right? So if you're sitting here in 1956, it's pretty obvious you had to get teams in Los Angeles, you probably need to get a team in the Bay Area, Texas, you know, all, uh, all of these other, today, there's, so, so the next time baseball thinks about expanding, right? Where are you, like Charlotte? Charlotte will have a team for three years, they'll lose interest, and then tennis will be, you know, they'll be yeah. Uh, right. so there's no place well, to go. That's, I talk about that in the book. Mexico City. Evidently, what? Yeah. No. Evidently, they want Mexico City and maybe Montreal. No, and that's what I've talked about in the book is that you have to begin to look outside the borders, right? Which also speaks, speaks to the globalization uh, issue as well. The other piece of this is that the obvious place to put, let's if you were starting an expansion team, the obvious place is New York or Los Angeles, right? I mean, that, that's not going to happen because of the rules around this stuff, but that's really, if you really want to look at the inequality, like, like this, New York isn't... The New York City metropolitan area is not twice the size of Kansas City's metropolitan area, right? It's much more than that, right? You could easily have three teams here, but that's that's simply not going to happen, Houston. right? Houston, right? And and that did, and for most of the time they struggled. I mean, you know, the, the they were the last the last ten years they were they were here. The Giants, other than one year, were always you know fourth or worst. Uh, were always in the bottom half of the league of the major leagues in attendance. So, but but it was a different time then also for New York City. Lee, well, they have. Big problems in Oakland and Tampa Bay, and supposedly you know, they want to go to Mexico City and they want to go to Montreal. But there's billions, evidently, in Portland, including Phil Knight of Nike, who's dying to get Oakland. So it, it, it's better run. I agree with what people saying. It's better run than it used to be. But the the one fool theory. And, and you're not going to solve any long-term problems by moving the A's to Portland. I mean, that's, you know, but, and, 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 and you may solve a problem for the A's for a few years, but in terms of the structural problems facing big league baseball, this is, this is just rearranging the deck chairs. And whether that's on the Titanic or a normal cruise ship, we'll see. I want to talk <coughs> contraction. I want to go back. Yes. Yeah. 35 years ago, I attended a annual meeting of Sabre, the New York chapter, the Casey Stengel chapter, held at the Shea Stadium press room, where the speaker was Frank Cashin, who was then general manager of the Mets, and before that, he'd been GM of Baltimore. He was a lawyer. And after he ascertained that there were no reporters in the room, he said, we got to contract. We got to contract. I don't recall the teams he said. I, it might have been Minnesota and Milwaukee back then. I don't know. Well, OK. Uh, I'm going 
just looking at the attendance in baseball this past year. Espen has the last 10 years attendance, you know, game, game average. They're easy to look up. Tampa Bay at the bottom, 15,800. Oakland, next up, 18,700. You just mentioned those two. And then Cleveland, 19,600. Those are the three at the bottom. Just for 15,000 was about what the Dodgers averaged in the 50s. No, I know that. I mean, just to put in perspective for everyone else. Yeah. But one reason Cashin wanted to contract wasn't just those teams were financially weak. He thought the quality of the game had decreased because they, they were some more, they were, you know, the marginal players were worse than they had been when there were only 16 teams with 25 players each. Now, I, I presume your view is that there can't be contraction now. Uh, and maybe that's just because of the antitrust laws, but do you think the major leagues, given their druthers, if they could get around the antitrust law, and they should be able to, in my view, whether they would contract. Well, I want to just speak to a couple of things you said. The notion that the talent is diluted. I mean, I don't know if you've ever looked at a, go, go to um, baseball reference and pull up the uh, roster of a bad team in the 30s, 40s, or 50s, right? The notion that there's less talent now than there was in the past is just abject nonsense, right? That's, that is the that is the kvetching of an old man. And I hope to be an old man someday, and I kvetch a lot when I get there, but that's what that is. That's, that's not defendable in a rational way. Um, this question of should they contract, I mean, I don't know that it's impossible. I mean, it, we could, I think there's certainly, first of all, just kind of never say never, but, you know, it's easy to imagine a situation where for some of the factors we lay out in the book, just the whole league has to question what its structure is, what's going on, and, you know, to get smaller and more reliably profitable makes some sense. But the antitrust issues, I mean, I don't know enough about, about that. Obviously, what do you, how do, we have a business here. Are you just going to erase it? Like, how does that, that work if you're, you know, the, I think it was the Expos, and that's why they moved to Washington, sure. it was the second team. Um, but if you're the, the Minnesota Twins or somebody like that, I know exactly how that worked. But I wouldn't rule it out entirely. Is, is attendance less important? Was. I mean, you talk about, you know, there were only 5,000 people when Roger married just the 50th home run that, that the, the shot heard around the world was only two-thirds. But I think even now, the new stadiums aren't as big as the other stadiums were. And I think that they're making more money by people watching and being online and whatever else. And well, it's complicated, right? So, for example, um, you know, every year when the Yankees are competing for that wild card spot, right, you'll see these numbers on how much like if they get a wild card, even if they lose at Yankee Stadium, it's a million bucks, right? That's the profit they're making in one sold-out game, right? And, and I remember I went to the Mets-Giants wild card game, and I've been going to baseball games for a long time. I have never seen, a, a, been to a ballpark, you know, I got there, let's say, half an hour before the first pitch and stayed, um, you know, until Bumgarner completed the, anyway, um, <laughs> and stayed to the very end. And, and I've never been in a ballpark where for so long there was such a concerted effort to separate the fans from their money, Right. So, because that one game can mean so much. Um, attendance does matter because the tickets are so expensive now, even relative to, to the actual income. So yes, attendance is not the only thing. Obviously, TV revenue is a big piece of it, but attendance is, is important too. Right, the tickets. From attendance. And the Yankees, for instance, I haven't looked at this for a while, per, uh, you know, per attendee take in, I think it's four times as much as the average. 
and the Giants and the Red Sox are right behind. Well, the Red Sox are made, some years are ahead of the the Yankees. Okay. No, not in this. Okay, but 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 that. But they're right, they're right behind. Right, and that's. That, I think the ticket prices might be higher, but they don't. And also, the better. Yankees' problem isn't that they don't sell tickets. The Yankees' problem is they don't fill seats. Yeah, right. That's right. And to Those me, and this is goes back to where we started, because because to me that's really interesting, right? If you can't sell tickets to a baseball game, we could we could. The reasons for that are obvious. The team's not good. The weather's crappy that day. Um, the tickets are too expensive, right? I mean, we can range more. Those are kind of normal market reasons, right? If you can't fill seats, typically what happens is that somebody, let's say, let's say that's a business that owns those, a law firm. We have our tickets. You know, the partners buy them thinking they'll go to some of the games. They'll use them to entertain clients. You know, Tuesday night, they realize nobody wants them, and they send an email. Anybody want these tickets? And people say no, right? That means that people, and they're not charging because they're their employees, right? So, and if we want free box, we got the box, who wants it? And everyone says no, right? What does that tell you, right? If it's an individual, they, maybe they're not going, they don't have an email to a whole firm, but maybe they, you know, you want the tickets, I can't use them, or they tell their kids or their siblings or something, their friends, and then they go to StubHub and they just drop the price and drop the price and drop the price and no one buys it. That's a problem for baseball that, that is not obvious but that may tell us more than simply attendance uh, numbers one. This is exactly what I said at that game. They should be, if you can't, but, but, but also now they're in private hands, right? Because you sell them so aggressively. And, you know, the Yankees could have a program or the White Sox could give away 5,000 tickets. When I was a kid, if you got a certain grade point average, you got, like, a packet of tickets to the Giants games, which no matter what my grades were, I got them because the Yankees didn't always want them. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, and they did. The Giants one year did only day games because the weather was so bad at night. So, but... But if you're selling the tickets, then you don't see the problem right away. Um, I, I would. I haven't read your book, and uh, I'm dying to read it. Uh, I find this uh, the problem with baseball an enigma. Um, I think it, it has to do with youth sports. I played professional baseball. I played in every league from Little League through Babe Ruth, American Legion, I, high school. I went to college. I got drafted, played three years in the Philadelphia Phillies organization, was released. I went over to Italy and played in, sorry, yeah. I went to Italy and played in the Italian National Baseball League where um, I heard that they were playing baseball in Belgium. The Cuban national team came through and played against us. So baseball is growing in the world. Um, it seems to me that <coughs> Uh, to go with his, uh, I lost my boys to soccer. I have two boys, uh, 21 and 18. They were very good players when they were young. Uh, I saw, I, I was glad, I thought, I saw that they inherited some of my skills. 
um, but they decided to play soccer. And it just seems to me like soccer trains three times a week. Um, they're, they're just, uh, they just get all the kids to play. You've got lacrosse, college programs are thriving, minor league baseball seems to be thriving, major league baseball seems to be thriving, but I think we're losing the power of, uh, of a young kid with a dream. Yeah, and, and there's, there are, I think there's many reasons for that, right? One is that, I mean, the example you give of, you know, baseball is, until you reach a certain level of ability, it's simply not fun, right? Drive by a middle school, seventh or eighth grade baseball game in America, and for the most part, what you will see is the pitcher striking everybody out, because there's one kid at every middle school who plays the game seriously. And the other kids aren't, it's great for the pitcher. You know, hopefully there's a catcher who can hold on to the ball. Not fun for everybody else, right? It's, it's that kind of a game. Now, when you have a lot of hours to spend building up those two basic skills without which you cannot play baseball, hitting the ball and throwing, you know, and pitching the ball, if you to do that informally on the sandlots, you know, with, with an older sibling, with a friend, whatever, if you don't do that, it's never going to be fun. Soccer and basketball in particular have a lower cost of entry in, in that regard. And then the other piece, and I wrote this, I, I tell this, um, uh, in the chapter on youth sports, I begin by telling an anecdote um, and about two twin brothers I knew growing up. I shouldn't say no, knew because I'm still you know, in regular contact with them, who were my best friends. One of them was, played basketball in, you know, at like a Division three college and was a basketball star in high school and grade school and, and, and a base, good baseball player. He didn't play baseball in high school, but he was always like, he was very good and on, you know, in any kind of informal football. The other one was unathletic because this guy, what he did was he went out to Ocean, I grew up in San Francisco, went out to the beach. I don't know if you've ever been to the Ocean Beach in San Francisco, but try going out there in that Pacific Ocean with a surfboard and standing up, right? He was unathletic because that's what he did with his time, right? I don't know if you've been to San Francisco, but try skateboarding down those hills and not getting killed every day. For He was unathletic, because that's what he did, right? And back then, skateboarding and surfing made you kind of like the subversive, dangerous punk rock type, right? Now, this guy's the sweetest guy in the world. He wasn't exactly dangerous. He was a little subversive. But <laughs> the point is that that was something that let adults look down upon and shunned and kind of stigmatized. He was, a, you know, and in my, in my uh, Catholic school, where we both, where all three of us were classmates, Oh, William, the, the, the skater, he was unathletic. Peter was a great athlete. Today, and all through high school, right? Today, and of course, we, we, we get in a pickup game, and William was better than almost anybody there, just wasn't quite as good as his twin brother, you know, because he knew what to do on the, I called them by their names in the, uh, in the book, their first names, so I won't say their last name, Lowry. Um, but in any case, I mean, but, but in, in any case, today, in addition to all those other issues, there's structured activities for skateboarding, for surfing, for all these other things that we never even thought of as, as sports or things. So it's, it's so, much, so many more things pulling you apart, away from it. And the other thing that is striking is, is um, both of my sons are pitchers, right? And that means that they spend an awful lot of time not playing, right? They go to the gym and lift weights. They run. They ride their bike. There are months at a time where they're not allowed to pick up a baby. They're old enough that they know. I don't have to tell them, but you know, if they want to pitch, they so so that's a hard way to fall in love with the sport. This is uh, the last question due to our uh, podcast time constraint. If, uh, I think maybe your sons are here tonight, and they should know what a wonderful dad that had you bring baseball to. Are they here? <laughs>
Yeah. There's a, just for the record, I have a lefty and a righty, so we're set even if we have to limit the roster. So, well, it was an extremely uh, interesting discussion. Thank you all for being involved. And for those listening, again, the name of the book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? Published by Temple University Press, written beautifully by Lincoln Mitchell. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. Pleasure.